Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of December 22nd, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. Yeah, we've been um, rather inevitably focusing on the horrific situation in Gaza for the past two and a half months now. But uh, on this rant, we're taking another excursion into the Western Hemisphere, where hopefully we actually get to discuss a crisis narrowly averted. U.S. military doctrine holds that the Pentagon should be able to wage two wars simultaneously in different parts of the world. And it was looking like it for a while, and still is, like it's about to get four. Eastern Europe, the Middle East, the South China Sea, and maybe the Korean Peninsula. And then, as of a few weeks ago, maybe five, Guyana. Yeah, with everything else going on in the world, the Venezuela of Nicolas Maduro decides that it would be a good time to revive claims to a very large chunk of the territory of neighboring Guyana. Now, Venezuela has been periodically reviving this extremely dubious claim for uh, decades, and usually for transparently political reasons. I mean, reasons not directly related to Venezuela's legal claim to the territory, of which there isn't much of one anyway. We're going to be looking at some of this history in this rant. The last time we went through this cycle was in September 2019, when Venezuelan prosecutors finally announced charges against opposition leader Juan Guaido, who, as we recall, um, opportunistically declared himself president in January of that year, a move that was approved by the opposition-controlled National Assembly, which the government had declared dissolved in 2017, and recognized by the United States, but was on thin constitutional grounds. This marked the start of an open campaign by the Trump administration and its hemispheric allies to oust the left populist President Nicolas Maduro, whose re-election the previous year, 2018, had also been constitutionally dubious, with opposition parties barred from running. The campaign to oust him inevitably raised memories of the attempted U.S.-backed coup against his more charismatic and competent predecessor, Hugo Chavez, back in April 2002. But when they finally got around to bringing charges against Guaido for high treason, it was not for colluding with foreign powers to overthrow the government. No, Guaido was to face charges for his apparent intent to renounce Venezuela's claim to a disputed stretch of territory that has been controlled by neighboring Guyana 
since the end of colonial rule. Fiscal General, that is the chief prosecutor, Tarek William Saab, told the press that Guaido was under investigation for secretly negotiating to renounce the historical claim our country has on the territory of Essequibo, quote-unquote. So, what's going on here? The Essequibo region covers some 160,000 square kilometers, nearly two-thirds of Guyana's national territory. In colonial times, the Spanish, Dutch, and British all made claims to the territory, and the Spanish claims were inherited by Venezuela after it won independence. Despite the fact that there was virtually no Venezuelan settlement in the territory, as there still is not today. In 1897, Venezuela and Britain agreed to international arbitration. Two years later, 1899, a Russian judge in a Paris court awarded the territory to the British Empire. But in 1962, Venezuela revived its claim in the United Nations, asserting that there was collusion between the judge and Britain in the 1899 ruling. After Guyana won independence from Britain in 1966, it entered into the Geneva Agreement with Venezuela, in which both sides agreed the territory would be administered by Guyana until the dispute was resolved. However, a four-year timetable for resolution was not adhered to, and the issue languished. The conflict was revived in 2015, when ExxonMobil announced discovery of a big offshore deposit in waters off the Essequibo coast. And this came just as Venezuela was sliding into crisis. Essequibo was for President Nicolas Maduro both a potential goad of more oil to exploit for his petro-state, if he could actually get it, and probably more importantly, a nationalist rallying cry amid the crisis of his regime. Under petition by Venezuela, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez in 2018 referred the dispute to the International Court of Justice, ICJ. Ironically, from the perspective of current politics, the Essequibo dispute was also at issue in 1964 when the U.S.-aligned Venezuela of Romulo Betancourt helpfully offered to intervene in Guyana, then still British Guyana, with only limited self-rule, to remove the left populist government of Chedi Jagan then target of a joint CIA-British destabilization effort. This intrigue, revealed in U.S. State Department documents obtained by Guyana's Stabrock News in 2015, involved the plot to put Jagan's rival Forbes Burnham in power, with Venezuela grabbing a chunk of the Essequibo in return for its efforts. 
Uh, this is pretty much corroborated by a really worthwhile report in the New York Times today, December 21st. I quote, alarmed that a Guyanese leader could create a Cuban beachhead in South America, Venezuela's staunchly anti-communist president, Romulo Betancourt, came up with a strategy which blunted the independence push. At the United Nations, his government resurrected a long-festering claim to more than half of Guyana's territory. End quote. So, uh, pretty rich irony, eh? The anti-communist and actually pro-colonialist origins of Venezuela's claim to Essequibo now being revived by the supposedly left populist anti-imperialist regime of Nicolas Maduro. Jagan was in fact forced to resign in favor of Burnham by CIA British intrigues in 1964, although it never came to Venezuelan intervention. And uh, two years later, in 1966, both sides agreed to the Geneva Agreement, which provided for a mixed commission to resolve the dispute. But as stated, this languished, and the territorial claim became a special fixation of Betancourt's successor as Venezuela's president, Raul Leone, who in 1968 issued the so-called Leone Decree, claiming a nine-mile-wide strip of Guyana's waters off the Essequibo coast, and the territorial claim was revived two generations later by the ostensibly left-wing Maduro. Maduro, also around this time, appeared to revive somewhat more vague centuries-old territorial claims to Colombia, his long-standing rival to the West, and this concerned the same region of Venezuela that he seeks to expand at Guyana's expense, interestingly. In July 2017, President Maduro jacked up tensions with Bogota, telling his Colombian counterpart Juan Manuel Santos from afar, bow down to me, I am your father, quote-unquote. Yeah, inclinate e incate ante tu padre, soy tu padre, in the verbatim. What, has this guy got a Darth Vader complex? Juan Manuel, I am your father. He actually said that. The nationally broadcast statement came after Santos had offered to mediate a resolution to the crisis in Venezuela, where clashes between security forces and opposition protesters had killed nearly 100 that year. The violence also spurred an increase in cross-border migration, a flow that has since turned into a flood. In rejecting the offer, Maduro insinuated Venezuelan supremacy over his neighbor. Quote, we were a single republic. Colombia was founded here in Orinoco. The people of Guayana are the fathers of Colombia. Our grandparents founded Colombia, end quote. Eramos una sola unión de república. Colombia se fundó aquí en el Orinoco. Ustedes guayaneses son los padres de Colombia. Nuestros abuelos fundaron Colombia, in the verbatim. He then went on to demand obeisance 
Uh, this was a reference to Venezuela's southeastern Guayana region, G-U-A-Y-A-N-A, in the basin of the Orinoco River, which borders both Guyana and a part of Brazil to the east and to the west, Colombia's eastern plains, through which Simon Bolivar liberated much of what is now Colombia, then New Granada, from Spanish rule in 1819. Bolivar subsequently ruled over both the contemporary nations, as well as Ecuador and Panama, under the Republic of Gran Colombia until his death in 1830, when the Federation collapsed. Maduro made his comments while on a visit to the Venezuelan state of Bolivar, which covers much of Guayana region. There was more than a whiff of desperation to all of this, as there has been in the recent re-escalation, and hopefully denouement, which brings us to the present juncture. On December 3rd of this year, Venezuelans went to the polls in a referendum called by the government in which they voted, albeit in a very low turnout, to endorse the proposed move to assert control over Essequibo and rejected International Court of Justice jurisdiction in the dispute. The vote also supported the creation of a new state to be called Guayana Essequiba, which would be incorporated into Venezuelan territory. In the prelude to the vote, Guyana requested emergency provisional measures from the ICJ, asserting that the referendum was a ploy by the Venezuelan government to abandon the proceedings and an attempt to use unilateral measures to resolve the controversy by formally annexing and integrating into Venezuela all of the territory at issue, quote, unquote. The referendum actually came two days after the ICJ responded to Guyana's request and ordered Venezuela to refrain from taking any actions that might alter the current situation in the disputed territory, although not explicitly instructing Caracas not to hold the referendum. Just two days after the referendum, Maduro ordered Venezuela's state oil company to prepare for oil exploration in Essequibo. And simultaneously, Guyana placed its armed forces on alert amid fears of a Venezuelan invasion, and Brazil also bolstered its military presence along the Venezuelan border. So things seem to be escalating toward Maduro pulling a Putin in Guyana, so to speak, and then Thank goodness, things de-escalated. Talks were held in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, brokered by Brazil and regional bodies, the Caribbean community, CARICOM, and the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, CELAC. And on December 14th, Maduro and Guyanese President Irfan Ali formally agreed not to use force against each other and to resolve the Essequibo dispute in accordance with international law. The resolution arrived at, called the Declaration of Argyle, 
explicitly stated that neither Guyana nor Venezuela would use force against each other in any dispute between the two nations. It also said that both nations will approach the controversy in accordance with the 1966 Geneva Agreement with the parties to establish a joint commission to review the issue and produce an update within three months. Additionally, the two states agreed to, quote, refrain, whether by words or deeds, from escalating any conflict or disagreement arising from any controversy between them, end quote. In the event of an incident on the ground, the parties are to call in CARICOM, CELAC, and Brazil to mediate. However, the document acknowledges differences between the two countries on the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, ICJ, and Guyana is continuing its case before the ICJ to keep Essequibo. Now, what is the context within Venezuela for all of this? The country has been in deep crisis, at least since 2015, really precipitated by the drop in oil prices at that time, more so than due to the U.S. sanctions that the Maduro regime and its apologists always point to. It was only in August 2019 that President Donald Trump instated a full embargo of Venezuela with an executive order barring U.S. companies from doing business with Maduro's government altogether. Before that, there had only been individually targeted sanctions against figures associated with the regime, never the kind of general embargo that had been imposed on Nicaragua, a much poorer country in the 1980s. And the oil sanctions were eased in December 2022, after negotiations in Mexico between the Maduro government and the opposition in which they agreed to new presidential elections, the first with meaningful opposition participation since 2012. The move allowed Chevron to begin pumping oil in Venezuela again. Well, the profits are to go to Venezuela's creditors in the United States, and Venezuelan foreign assets were to be unfrozen but for a United Nations-managed fund for health care and infrastructure in the country, which were in a terrible mess and still are a year later. Since 2015, an estimated 7.7 million Venezuelans, or one in four, have fled the country due to the economic chaos, according to the UN. And uh, shortly thereafter, in the closing days of 2022, just a year ago, the opposition National Assembly, which Maduro did not recognize, voted to dissolve the declared but powerless so-called interim government of Juan Guaido. So things seemed to be moving in the right direction. And then this October things began to heat up again, with the regime launching an electoral fraud investigation into the winner of the opposition primaries, Maria Corina Machado, and suspending her candidacy. And lo and behold, just at this point, 
Maduro starts making a big deal out of Esakibo again. And charges were also brought against Guaido, now in exile in Miami, of course, and some of Machado's aides for supposedly plotting against the Esakibo referendum. Now, the ironic consensus of both left and right is that Venezuela is a socialist. And for the right, this is at the root of the crisis, unsound socialist economics. Whereas for the left, the crisis is entirely due to U.S. sanctions and interference. In contrast, I assert that the root of the crisis is precisely that Venezuela isn't socialist, or at least is insufficiently socialist. Contrary to popular belief, Venezuela's oil industry was never nationalized, as it was in Mexico in 1938. The private multinationals were allowed to continue operating in Venezuela as minority partners with the state company. The same policy as in Venezuela's regional rival, Colombia. The limited agrarian reform left the landed oligarchy intact, leading Venezuela's campesino movement to grow impatient, if not disillusioned, and the continued emphasis on the extractivist economy cost the government much goodwill with Venezuela's indigenous movements. In other words, rather than redistributing the land to empower the campesino sector and genuinely strive toward food self-sufficiency, as opposed to the more vague construction of food sovereignty, quote-unquote, Chavez and Maduro have instead emphasized a clientelist distribution of oil wealth to buy party loyalty. Venezuela has remained a petro-state and an increasingly kleptocratic one. This left the whole model vulnerable to a crash in oil prices, which is what happened in 2015. But again, more to the point, that model is not socialism. It is corporatism, actual corporatism, as the term was used in the 20th century to describe populist regimes that sought to control social movements from above, as discussed in our podcast about Argentina two weeks ago. The regime couldn't come to terms with Exxon, so they were booted, but um, Chevron remained until Trump's executive order of 2019, and new contracts were meanwhile signed with the China National Petroleum Corporation. So, meet the new corporate exploiter? A populist and a corporatist by its old-school definition, but hardly socialist. Yep. And don't forget that Maduro and his regime are under investigation by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity in their repression of protests, something we all applaud when it is Bibi Netanyahu, who is under investigation for war crimes in Gaza, which are indeed assuredly far more massive, but that hardly lets Maduro off the hook for anything. 
So Maduro has sought to exploit the Essequibo question to rally the masses around a revanchist and nationalist project as a distraction from the economic chaos, as well as actually wanting the territory and its oil resources. Hopefully, we are now back from this particular brink, and we will be spared both the prospect of direct U.S. military intervention in South America and the perverse spectacle of gringo tankies, that actually deeply reactionary sector of the supposed anti-imperialist left that supports Russian and Chinese imperialism rallying around a Venezuelan territorial grab in Guyana, just as they shamefully have Russia's territorial grab in Ukraine and the seemingly impending Chinese territorial grab in Taiwan. So, yeah, with luck, we're going to be spared all of that. Oh, hala, that's a relief. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> a big shout out uh, to my friend and comrade Robert Cuffey, a very astute and progressive observer of affairs in his native Guyana, whose commentaries on all of this, principally on Facebook, have been very helpful to me in preparing this rant. Thank you, Robert. And uh, also a shout-out to our new social media volunteer, Adam Weissman, who has been putting a weekly counter-vortex vlog up on YouTube. Please check out the new counter-vortex channel there. And a shout-out to um, five readers and listeners in New York, Los Angeles, Milan, Italy, and... Gloucestershire, England, who have contributed to our year-end fund drive, which now stands at $180. We'd like it to jump ahead to our modest goal of $500 by year's end, which is to say in the next week, (laughs) uh, which is but a fraction of our annual operating cost. So if you want to keep these didactic rants coming, you know what to do. Countervortex.org. Just click on support us. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon to the tune of just one or two bucks per weekly rant. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.